Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, alongside soccer journalist Sam Griswold and media executive Grail Hallett as our soccer corona coverage continues like like we have a choice. Anyway, we have a great guest lined up today. He's uh, He's been on before. He's a friend of the show. He's the new CEO, well, four to six months, I think, CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, Mr. Skip Gilbert. So he'll be joining us, and uh, a lot happening over there. So Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for their pro membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ. Ticket IQ is the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets anywhere. You can visit them at TicketIQ.com or download the app in iTunes or Google Play and start saving money on your next soccer ticket or any ticket for that matter. Though nobody's going to anything right now, guys, <laughs> because this is our Corona coverage. It continues. Uh, whatever the hell that is, Corona coverage. Uh, so, guys, what are you over today on Over the Ball? Sam? Yeah, I'm going to go with – I don't have a ton to be over. There's just not enough happening really for me. But uh, I'm going to go with clubs that are kind of solely looking out for themselves amidst all this. Um, you know, there's a team in Italy, Brescia, which is pretty much certain to be relegated, you know, whether or not the season continues. And, you know, they're petitioning to get the season, um, you know, voided. And I know in the Premier League, they're having similar issues with the teams at the bottom. Uh, you know, I think this stems from the fact that, you know, the leagues here in the United States are much more, you know, compact. And I mean, relegation obviously has a lot to do with that in European leagues and they're where the clubs are kind of more on their own, but I, I don't know. I just don't like it. I think teams need to kind of think of what's best for the league as a whole right now and not themselves. Well, MLS is centrally owned, right? Run through the, through, through MLS. So that's one difference. I think uh, it's a little bit more like maybe a collection of States that these, uh, you know, these teams that are at the bottom of the rung. I mean, everybody is looking out for themselves all the time. It seems like we're doing that in this country right now as well uh, in some parks and some places, but, uh, I think people uh, have to, if someone would just make a ruling and take everybody out of their misery and say, this is what's going to happen. It's not fair for anybody or everybody. It's just the reality that we're facing right now that puts an end to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame these teams for sort of jockeying for uh, the ability to like, if we win two more games, we're not relegated and that's millions of dollars. Um, and I think that happens when people just, when they're the leadership, whether it's, you know, whoever uh, of each league, uh, when they vacillate uh, on what they want to do, and all of them have. Nobody's come down with a ruling. So there's me venting on your little vent, uh, Sam. <laughs> Grail, what do you got? Well, there have been a lot of proposals out there for a lot of different things, but I am over the <laughs> proposal about shortening Premier League matches to 80 minutes. Which Whose I idea was that? Whose idea was that? It's been floated out there as a way to not only kind of save – the wear and tear of players because of the number of matches they're going to have to play in a short period of time, but also kind of just move things along. I think it's idiotic. I, I, you know me, I'm such a purist. I hate when rules and regulations that have been, been in place for a long time, people want to just change them. And, you know, a match is 90 minutes. It's always been 90 minutes. It will always be 90 minutes and it is not going to be 80 minutes. So I am over that. Well, uh, I'd like to just vent about, I think we should be able to use our hands. 
in soccer. Oh, yeah, exactly. That would be the that should be next. Well, remember no. when MLS talked about making the goals bigger? I mean, stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. No offsides. Crazy. No, exactly. Stop it. So um, here here's what's bugging me is uh, Joe Biden tweeted out about the U.S. Women's National Team. He oh, said, uh, you know, which is just so just uh, patronizing. It's to the U.S. Women's National Team. Don't give up this fight. This is not over yet. To at U.S. Soccer, equal pay now, or else when I'm president, you can go elsewhere for World Cup funding. And then, boy, you know what? He obviously does not know the issues. But somebody on his staff who said, "Just jump on this. We want the women's vote." Yeah. Uh, but you know, and I'm all for you know equal pay. But it's the factors are the women got schooled in this lawsuit, absolutely schooled in this lawsuit. And I told you guys this was going to happen because there's no like a feel-good moment with it that, you know, their biggest issue apparently is with FIFA paying the men's World Cup winners and participants more than the women's winners, even though the men's brings in more money. So is their issue with FIFA or is it with U.S. soccer? Because they also, the judge says they're, they're two very different contracts that the, you know, maternity leave and guaranteed player positions and, and guaranteed number of spots, all the things that the men didn't have. And it turned out that if they break it down the way they did, the women made more than the men. So, guys, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Well, well, bottom line is the judge basically said that their core argument didn't hold water, right? So they couldn't even – it was insufficient to go to trial, which just kind of like cut them off the knees. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think they might have um, – they might have uh, overplayed their hand, obviously financially, which we can get into later, but uh, also just maybe uh, – thought that the court of public opinion, which was very much in their camp, obviously, uh, in terms of equal pay, was going to somehow translate into a, uh, a positive outcome in the courts. And it just didn't, because the judge basically looked at it strictly on the merits of what they, the U.S. Women's National Team, had, uh, had petitioned for and got. And then, unfortunately, well, because they performed so well, they felt that they deserved more, but when you add up the numbers, actually, they were actually being paid more than the U.S. men's national. They, they tried to change halfway through. They tried to get the men's contract after they had rejected it and, and, and took the, the other contract. It's, it's uh, surprising to me that they weren't even allowed to go to court, which we had uh, the lawyer Stephen Banks on a couple of weeks ago, and he had, he had kind of um, intimated the same thing was going to happen because it's about facts. It's not about feeling at this point. When you go to court, it's about facts. Now, you talk about the women and their PR campaign. I think it was successful in the beginning. Yeah. They, they won the World Cup. They had all this positive press. They, they played their best card. They took a shot, and and it, I think it ultimately missed here in and, court. And I and I think their lawyer gave them bad advice in terms of putting a number out there like sixty six point seven million dollars in damages that was just so ludicrous, and was never going to be the number that U.S. Soccer agreed. Yeah, to so I, I wanted to ask you about that, Grail, because yeah. is is that like just a negotiating ploy where let me ask for the I, moon? Look, I, I think it's like anything, and you know, you're going for a new job, and you say you're paid X amount because you want to get, you know, you have in your mind that you want to get a certain amount of money, so you tend to overstate it. I think they overstated it though by s such a magnitude that it actually worked against them. And, uh, you know, U.S. soccer, I think, had proposed $9 million, which I think is somewhat measly um, mm -hmm. on their end. But, you know, I, again, I don't – I will applaud U.S. soccer at this point for not, you know, spiking the, the football, to use another analogy, right. when this ruling came down and basically said, 
we'd like to work uh, together to come up with a mutually beneficial solution or whatever there I'm paraphrasing. But right. so, you know, if I were us soccer, I would just come back with a, um, with a counter offer, you know, and maybe the 20 million range, which is twice what they originally offered. Um, so to me, it's generous, but you, you can't, the 66 million number is just so ludicrous and was never going to be the number that, that was, that, that they were going to get. So, so again, I, I think they can both end up being winners in this whole thing. But I think U.S. soccer really has to put a number out there that's a meaningful number and that shows that they want to resolve this issue in a, in a yeah. way that's fair. I'm interested, I, I, in what, I'm interested in what happens going forward because I think it was uh, Stephen Bank when we had him on who was explaining that you know, the men's and women's deals are uh, staggered and that the women will agree their deal. And then two years later, the men will, you know, renegotiate their deal. So, you know, if their push is for equal pay and let's say they get that, and then two years later, the men negotiate a new deal, then all of a sudden they're making more money again. I mean, I don't know. They're they're up. Yeah. So they're up again, Sam, in 2022. So I think what they could do though, is just uh, come to an agreement. you know, that, that isn't necessarily what they had wanted originally, but that obviously is something that's far better than they have. And then look at 2022. At some point, though, I just think it would make most sense for both teams to be on the same calendar year. So Absolutely. Yeah. Or, same ca- or how about the same contract? Because yeah. you're on the same contract, period. But that, yeah. still, that still doesn't address the issue of the greater FIFA money that comes in from the Men's World Cup. And again, I get back to the, my, you know, my interview with Carly Lloyd when she said that women's you know, WNBA should make what the NBA makes. It's, a, it's preposterous. And yet, you know, Joe Biden should write a note to the NBA commissioner saying, until you pay the WNBA players as much as the NBA players, uh, I will not support the NBA. Maybe I'm stretching it there. Well, well in, a, in a way, you know, the, U, the U.S. women's national team kind of undersold themselves because if they had, if they had gone more on um, – if they had bet more on their own performance – and the bonuses that they could have earned, they would have made out great, but they decided to go more of the benefits route and more of the guaranteed, uh, more contracted players, things like that, right. which kind of locked them into a more secure deal, but it didn't have as much upside. And so, but yeah. that was the deal they signed. And unfortunately, I think if they'd been willing to roll the dice a little bit more and say, hey, we're the best damn team in the world we're going to bet on that and we're going to go for the higher bonuses based on that. They would have really made it out a lot better. Yeah. And guess what? Um, based on our current contract, we are the best funded women's team in the world by far. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there's going to be blowback basically because I think they did, as I said earlier, took their best shot and now they lose in the court, um, in the court with facts. And then slowly public opinion will erode a bit, I think, because, it's not a good time. I think it was a bad time to sort of come out that hard. And I also think it was a bad time at U.S. soccer because they were disorganized, dysfunctional, and they played this so poorly PR-wise, yeah, said, U.S. I mean, soccer. Again, I think it's a great opportunity for both sides to come out winners right now. They just, I think right. U.S. soccer just has to do the right thing and put a really significant offer out there. And the, the women's national team is just going to have to come down. They're going to have to get their heads away from that $66 million because that's just not – in the in the realm of reality well, but, but again i think for both sides they need to get this thing solved soon and move on right right yeah. so uh, let's uh, we'll wait and see there have been some changes and joy fawcett is there maybe that will make a difference i hope it does uh all right so soccer getting back uh back to the field 
what what teams are getting back, what countries, what. But I think Germany seems to have uh, announced in the first state, the first country to basically green light an actual resume date on Thursday. So, um, well, guys so they're, both yeah, yeah, they're actually, yeah, they're actually voting today, Flinny, on whether or not to resume on the 15th, May 15th or May 22nd. Okay. So that, that, that will, that decision, it could have been made already. I, I'm not, uh, but I mean, <laughs> since uh, Germany is what, six hours ahead of us. So that decision, <laughs> that decision could have come down already, but uh, that's what they're looking at. But they've now. got what eight or nine games. Nine left? matches left, empty stadiums. Get it all wrapped up by June thirtieth. That's yeah. that's the goal. It's um, be like uh, like our spring season. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they do have you know they have players testing positive still, so they're going to have to quarantine those players. So it's not like everything is totally clean. From a COVID nineteen. Well, they're uh, testing players, and it, what, yeah, they, yeah, they tested, tested all all thirty six clubs in the top two tiers. Uh, Seventeen hundred plus players and ten players came back positive, which, on a percentage basis, is is small, but it's still ten players that you need to kind of get away from. Absolutely, everybody else, you know. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think uh, one player got suspended for physical contact. Yeah, uh, yeah, Kalu, who's an ex Chelsea player. I I hate to admit it. There it is. Uh, well, there it is, Sam. We got the Chelsea mention no, in there. Of course, I had to get the plug in. No, he 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 did he did like the double dip of stupidity. He did the physical contact with his players, and then he burst in on one of his teammates at uh, Hertha Berlin, uh, who was having his COVID nineteen test, and somehow thought that'd be funny. God, so, so well, it's he, not as invasive as like a colonoscopy or something well, walking in on one. Well, well, I know it's not, but it's not exactly like the behavior that you want in this current. No, not taking it seriously. So. Well, I'm sure the players are all fooling around. I saw, I saw uh, some pictures of Messi and his teammates wearing the masks as they were training, which yeah. I think is kind of foolish because you're bumping it up against players. It's it's not just your breath. I mean, yeah, yeah. I also thought it was kind of interesting, as an aside, that uh, apparently Emmanuel Macron, the president of, of France, had actually approached the Bundesliga about uh, canceling their season as well, because I don't think he wanted to to do it alone, be out there with no cover. But uh, yeah, they said I, thanks, but no thanks. We're yeah. going ahead. I think it's so, going to be a, a very interesting experiment. I mean, I think yeah. every professional sports league in the world probably has their eye on this right now um, for how it's handled, how it goes, if yeah. there's any fallback, et cetera. Um, I also find it interesting that it's happening in Germany because that's where you have the strongest fan backlash against, you know, moving games to Monday nights for TV and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, this whole soccer without fans is nothing. So Curious to see what the pushback is um, on that level. But don't you think, Sam, from, from just an organizational standpoint, I feel like Germany and in the, in the Bundesliga is run so well. And, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, of all the places that would be, I would put my money on them probably doing it right. They're no. Well, guarantees. the other thing, the other thing though that's interesting is they are by far the most financially sound league because of yeah. the way their clubs are owned. So, if anything, they have the least need to rush back to playing. Mm -hmm. um, True. So. Uh, it seems to all be tied up in the television money, and you know, so people can be unhappy about not being able to go to the games, but they'd be even less happy if they couldn't see any games on television. So, exactly. um, so, and then the EPL is going to start up again there. They have a May 18th date. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the target. Well, that's the target date for training in small groups. And then June 12th to resume matches. They've called it project restart. I always love, by the way, when everybody needs to put 
a slogan on something. So this is Project Restart, and they're uh, this. The, the tricky thing is they want to play the nine remaining matches at neutral grounds, which has caused a huge uproar, especially amongst teams that feel that they look. Every team wants to play at home, but especially some of the teams in the lower part of the table feel that it's essential for them, not only for, from a gate receipts perspective, but from a uh, support perspective to be allowed their home matches. But Sam, this is your point. You know, it, it's like the clubs are being like, somebody's got to give something here, guys. It's, uh, you know, you, know, you can't either playing with no yeah. fans. The fans aren't happy, but that's what has to happen. The, um, yeah, playing I mean, in away I, stadiums, that's, you know, what, what's, just make rules and, and go. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think some kind of mandate from the top has to happen. But, you know, I do, I do feel like they're, especially in the Premier League with Liverpool being so far ahead that, you know, the feeling is like, you know, let's just finish it. It's a formality. Let's just get it over with. Yeah. But, you know, I, that being said, you know, there are teams who's, you know, have a lot riding on the rest of the season. Right. Uh, and it's yeah, not I mean, about you just got going six. out there and getting a game on TV. Yeah, the six clubs at the bottom. I mean, the problem is they've they've got essentially you know twenty votes here, and um, they need a majority of fourteen to six for this to be pushed through. And there are already six clubs that have gone on the record basically saying that we're against playing in neutral ground. So it'll be interesting if they kind of gum up the works. Um, but uh, I heard the. Uh, First, I'd heard of this. Maybe people have been talking about it for a while, but just the idea of getting rid of relegation altogether, um, but not scrapping promotion. So you'd end for up this getting, season or for, for this general? season? No, 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 yeah, for this, this season. So yeah, you'd yeah, end up in the Premier League, for example, with twenty-three clubs in the top league or in the Premier League. Yeah, uh, how that would look? Year. Would that for change one. the television schedule? Would that change the contracts? I mean, you know? In my get opinion, less there's, there's probably a cup or two you could get rid of in England uh, to yeah. make room for these games. But you know, that makes a lot of sense. I think, Sam. I think you know because you don't want to punish anybody unfairly. The only teams you'd be punishing are the three relegation teams. So, what happens at the next year? Right. Well, I guess the, the other the teams that should be relegated get relegated again. So I guess they just add games to the schedule. So. Uh, more money, more money, more money. Yeah, so, uh, I, it's, it, I can see both sides of it. But, you know, the bottom line is right now that they're looking at uh, losing about or having to pay back 762 million pounds. Uh, the team's paying it back to the TV broadcasters because they've already been paid that money for the game. So, oh, they're not but, used to money going the other way, I'll tell no, you. No, as that, you were they, saying, Flinny, that's, that's the big deal. The, the big deal is just getting these games played because they're already hemorrhaging money. So the last thing any of these teams can afford is to be sending money back in the other direction. So Right, right. Like, like all of us here at home. Yeah. Nobody's working. So. Yeah, and one, one other interesting little side part of this is, um, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, obviously this one of the star players for city um he he intimated that if uh that if city got a two-year ban from champions league for their financial i'll call it just financial improprieties um that he would consider looking to move on to another club which would obviously have huge ramifications for man city so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out well i, I think that pretty much any player would make that a huge consideration in moving yeah. forward in their contract because that's that's the big time that's mm -hmm. that's the big stage in the world so yep. um so and what a player he is man would i love to see him uh at some other clubs even take on more responsibility than he has i mean every time he touches the ball he's just absolutely magic his vision you would have teams technique. lining up 
he would have teams lining up for him and he would break all the transfer fees right now because he's right in his prime. All right, cool, guys. All right, well, let's take a break here. And when we come back, our interview with Skip Gilbert, the CEO of United States Youth Soccer. You're listening to Over the Ball. Our guest today on Over the Ball is not only the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, but a guy uh, well, I ran into while playing college soccer in New England back in the 80s when we took on a really skillful squad, I remember, from the University of Vermont, a team that uh, had this crazy goalkeeper, which is kind of an oxymoron to say a crazy goalkeeper, but uh, an All-American goalkeeper who you couldn't seem to get anything past. I remember a couple of incredible saves. looked like, uh, like Nadia Comaneci. Uh, though I think I'm dating myself with that uh, with that <laughs> reference there, maybe a, or a Kathy Rigby reference, uh, Simone Biles, maybe that one. How about that? So, but prior to joining uh, U.S. Uh, youth Soccer uh, as the CEO, Mr. Gilbert was served as the leadership roles with a number of sports organizations over the course of his career. Uh, most recently, with U.S. Anti-Doping Agency (USADA) as its managing director of operations and marketing, but he was also Quite a player in his day, played up the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the NASL, U.S. Olympic Development Team, and trained with Sheffield United. But he's with us here now, uh, takes over as CEO of U.S. Uh, youth Soccer, and then boom, a pandemic hits. Welcome back to OTB, Skip Gilbert. How are you? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, you take this job, and... Um, well, you probably had a nice laid out plan that you wanted to implement and your ideas, your thoughts. And then all of a sudden, a once in a hundred year pandemic hits. How has that changed your approach to this, uh, to this job? Well, you know, when I was actually going through the interviewing process, one of the things that came out of it was the fact that we needed to create a strategic plan, um, which we're now embarking on. But they certainly didn't look at me and said, oh, by the way, in three months, the world's going to come to a complete stop. No one's going to play soccer globally. And by the way, what are you going to do? Um, so we're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Double edged there. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, from, from that standpoint, it did kind of change the priorities a little bit, you know, knowing the fact that, you know, from a, from a, from a financial standpoint, you know, we've got thousands of clubs around the country that depend on registration fees to be able to support their, their coaches, their staff, their whole operations. And is there any sense of comfort? Is there any direction that we might be able to help provide for you know, for those clubs. And then you, know, you add to the parents, the players, the coaches. Yeah, it's been kind of busy. <laughs> no, it, it's busy. And it's also hard, Skip, because look, it's your job. It's so important to so many kids out there. Yet, sometimes we think we talk sports during a difficult period like this. I mean, people are just trying to, to get food on the table. I mean, I can't believe we're talking in these terms now. But, um, you know, the, the problem with not being able to get together is during difficult times, we, we can't get each other through with the usual ways that we do it, whether it's through entertainment or, or sports. And I think, you know, part of the, sometimes we, we talk on this show a lot about when the leagues are going to start up again. And it sometimes feels very superfluous, very, very like, you know, deaf, tone deaf to say th there are bigger problems facing us right now. But th this is a big, meaningful part of, of kids' lives and developments. And so that's a big responsibility. Well, it is. I mean, and I saw something a while back that you know, someone had put out a sign saying, I feel all alone, but I know we're in this together. 
know, and I think that is, you know, sort of the underscore is the fact that we are all in this together. And if you look throughout history, what's the common bond that brings communities together? You know, what brings countries together? Sports, you know, and then you can even take it, I mean, behind me, the Olympic flag, you know, the Olympics are known. It doesn't matter at who's at war, who doesn't like whom. The minute the Olympic games start, people put their differences aside, they step out onto the field to play and they come together as one unified body. Sure, you're going to get your winners, you're going to get your losers, but they're all there for a mission, which is coming together. So as we even before we came into the pandemic, you know, one of the things that I was advocating is we got to we got to kind of look at what we're doing from a travel perspective. Parents are putting their kids on airplanes way too much for league games or, you know, or whatever they're trying to accomplish and the cost. And so now as we are trying to emerge from the pandemic, can we use sport for the benefit of bringing communities back together? Can we celebrate the bond that we should have as human beings by being able to celebrate what's going on in the field of play? You know, and certainly selfishly, I hope everybody walks out of their house holding a soccer ball, but you know, there are plenty of other great sports out there that can do the exact same thing if we all do it together in a very consistent, very safe fashion. Yeah, that's a great point, Skip, because it seemed like sports themselves have become divisive in the sense that you have to play baseball, but you can't play lacrosse, but you can play soccer, but you don't play football. It's like, and it sort of undermines just the ability of participation, the sort of the, the whole idea of participation. So, you know, maybe like some good can, can come of this uh, in, in an area like this. You know, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. And, and again, I've been an advocate for a long time, but now certainly in my position, I hate the term recreational player because it is almost always preceded by the word just. Oh, he's just a rec player. She's just yeah. a rec player. And what does that do for an organization or for a sports ability to build the base and get more kids involved in the game and not just in the game at the moment, but stay with it. And if you look at all the trends in soccer, kids hit 13, 14, they're not on the premier team. They're not on that travel team. So they don't feel as if they're good enough and they turn, simply walk away. Yet if we're able to re-energize that kind of community-based programming, could those kids end up playing club soccer? Could they play adult soccer? Will they become soccer parents? You know, will they go out and buy tickets for NWSL, USL, MLS, US soccer? You know, so what we're trying to do and where I think coming out of the pandemic, we can really focus on is soccer's not just a sport. We want it to become a lifestyle. And I will use the Super Bowl and, and the NFL as a great example of turning a sport into a lifestyle. You know, you have 100 million people that are going to watch the Super Bowl. That morning, the morning of the Super Bowl, of those 100 million that are gathered at parties watching the Super Bowl, how many of them actually knew the two teams that were going to be playing that night in the game? And it, so it's not so much that they're fans of the game, it's the lifestyle. And they're coming together as a community to celebrate something that's of importance to them. Soccer is standing very well poised to be that next life, lifestyle iconic sport that can really capture the attention of the American public. I agree with that. And I think uh, NFL, most of the fans are chicken wing fans. I'm not sure if they're actually <laughs> football fans. <laughs> so, Grail, you have a question? Yeah, so Skip, you're, you're coming up on your four-month anniversary 
at USYS, which probably feels like your 400 month anniversary based on what's been going yeah. on. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, what keeps you up at night? What, what issues of which I'm sure there are many, but what, what two or three issues are really kind of gnawing at you as you're trying to kind of proceed through this really challenging time? You know, first and foremost, I mean, again, as the CEO of the organization, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, you know, the livelihood and the health and wellness of our staff. You know, we've got 56 staff members around the country, um, you know, that are all very passionate, very committed about the game, but they have their own family. So, I mean, making sure everybody is, is health, healthy and, and well is certainly paramount and that we're able to, you know, kind of keep them on staff. Um, secondly, you know, is really just where can, where is soccer going to go once we come out of the pandemic? Mm. You know, and again, we just, we talked on it briefly, but, you know, there are, what, 30 million Americans now on unemployment. You know, the financially, almost every family is going to feel some level of impact coming out of this. You know, but at the same token, not only is it a, a concern, but also what are the opportunities? And that's probably where I spend a lot of time thinking is how can we reshape the world of soccer to be able to best reflect the needs of society in the fall and moving forward? You know, and again, is it where you're more geocentric? So, you know, I think now, and, and I'll be the first to put my hands up, you know, this is the first time in years that all of my kids have been home for a long period of time. We're having a great time. Um, you know, I'm sure it'll be a much better time when they can leave the house again. But right <laughs> Dad, now, I love you, but I want to see one of my friends, for God's <laughs> sakes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no more, you know, parties via Zoom. Yeah. But, you know, the idea is, is we have become such a structured in society, you know, where when I was growing up, and I'm sure the same for you guys, most of the time we learn sports or I learn sports from going outside in the backyard to play. You know, right. to meeting friends in the schoolyard or a park and just being able to figure out what foot, you know, what footballs are about. Or let's go down to the tennis courts and let's see what that's all about. You know, well, where today it is absolutely structured. At 10, from 9 to 10, you're doing this, 10 to 11. And, and it's almost, you know, we joke, parents have become taxi cab drivers. So yeah. if that might change, how can we as sport administrators change our environment to meet the new needs of society? You know, and that is going to be a real telltale as to whether or not we're able to continue to be successful or whether we're going to struggle a bit. I think you touched on a bunch of things, Skip, but I think one of the things that there, there could be an opportunity here is a lot of the guys I played with, a lot of college coaches, uh, a lot of high school coaches talk about too much travel for these kids, and you mentioned it now. Now, we're all aware of our travel because of, you know, COVID-19, but these kids are getting on a van, getting in a car driving to New Jersey from Connecticut or, or whatever, and they're playing maybe three, four games in a weekend, but they're not touching the ball. Now, you mentioned how we started, you know, growing up. It was basically summer vacation happened. You'd be like, Mom, Dad, I'll see you in September. You know, it's like, adios, you're out the door. And uh, everything's been structured right down to play dates and, and everything else. So perhaps that could be an opportunity. And the other thing you mentioned that, that kind of struck me was, you know, you say a lot of kids are dropping out at 13 to 14 years old, right when your high school experience becomes even more important, you know, developing as a player in high school. And I don't know 
about you know the, this panel's experience because we all played at, at a high level. But at 13 and 14, you didn't know who the best players were at that point. People hadn't developed physically. They hadn't gotten mentally tough. The sort of the cream started to rise 15, 16, 17. You started to see who really had the eye of the tiger. And it wasn't anything to do with what the parents uh, you know, were doing. It was a player. Suddenly somebody wanted to take it to the next level. Um, so, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps this, this can be have a bit of a silver lining. You agree? I, oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, and I always chuckle because you know, a couple of years back, I was at a cocktail party, you know, here down in Fairfield County, and it was an outdoor <laughs> affair and kids were running all over the place. And a parent came up to me who had found out my, my playing background. And she said, could you see, you know, there's my son who was running across the, the yard and she says, do you think he's going to be a great soccer player? And, you know, the kid was seven years old and was just, I and I thought, you know, we've, we're turning, you know, we're turning society into, you know, the parents demanding that if we don't know by the time they're seven years old, that they're going to be playing, you know, in major league, you know, with, with MLS, um, something's wrong with the world. And so I'm hoping that coming from this, that, you know, it's one thing to want to be on a travel team when you're 15, 16, 17, and you know that your, your passion is there. But to put kids in a travel position when they're seven, eight, nine, that's more for the parents. Because the kid, as you had just mentioned, Kevin, the kid probably hasn't turned soccer on as a passion yet. You know, it is a sport, it is a, it is a social outlet for them to make friends. But in terms of a lifelong passion, I would say very few kids know what they truly want to do with their life when they're seven, eight, nine years old. Come on, I don't know what I want to do with my life now. Are you kidding me? Now I'm <laughs> seven years old. I get, Grail, you wanted to follow up on that quickly? But Sam, you yeah, got a question? Well, uh, yeah, just, just Skip, in terms of, you were talking about opportunities here. Um, U.S. Soccer disbanded the Development Academy, their Development Academy, and uh, they've also experienced a lot of dysfunction within that organization uh, over the last couple of years. And I'm just curious, with those things happening, what what do you think is the opportunity for your your organization in terms of stepping up? You know, I I, I actually had a conversation about this with someone a couple of weeks back. You know when we canceled our national championships this year, I didn't realize, you know, you learn something new every day that we've been doing the national since about 1935, you know? So when I, when you look at what's going on with us soccer and the challenges that they have, and I had a nice conversation with Will Wilson, their, their CEO yesterday, you know, and I think he's, he's got the right attitude, the right skill set, the right designs to be able to kind of turn that around and, you know, make us soccer back to where it, it should be. But at the same token, U.S. youth, you know, we've got almost 3 million soccer players within our family. You know, we have 55 state associations that are all incredibly strong. So as much as we can depend on U.S. soccer for guidance and leadership, we're also big enough and with a strong enough history and success that we can be autonomous for a while. And they don't have to worry about the youth side of the sport because you know, we're there. There are a couple of other organizations that are doing a great job. You know, they've, got, you know, they've got their big fish to fry, which is you know, are the women gonna win the World Cup again the next go around? And will the, will the men be competitive in the next World Cup? You know, and that's really gotta be their charge and you know, their overachieving goal. 
-hmm. Well, it's interesting, Skip, in that, that first tournament in 1935, a little fun fact for you, Grail actually played in it. So <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. I scored two goals, by the way. <laughs> exactly. And he still got the ball. Big brown thing, <laughs> deflated, sitting on his shelf. So Sam, you had a question for, for Skip. Uh, yeah, Skip, you've touched on a few of these points already, but um, I'm wondering, you know, in light of everything with this idea of youth soccer becoming less travel based, you know, maybe more regional, you know, what, what does that actually look like? Does that mean giving the states themselves, you know, more autonomy, you know, a region itself more autonomy? And then how do you sort of use that to get stronger as a whole? Yeah, I, th I think in one sense, you know, the states have you know, terrific autonomy now. But where I'd like to see things get better is that they all run these the state cup competitions. And some states do, you know, a great job with it. Some states, you know, it, it may not be the number one priority for the players. Um, and so I think there's a huge opportunity to elevate the stature and the excitement around the state cups, especially if we can create a better pipeline into the national championships. Our national league uh, we're, we're making some significant changes there, which is a right now a league of conferences. We have 13 conferences, and I expect that that's going to get a lot bigger because, again, the geofocus so that uh, a week ago I was talking to one of, our, one of our folks down in Georgia that said we've got to do something about league play. We had a team from Georgia playing a team from South Carolina in Tampa for a league competition. That's just why. You know, I mean, just drive the hour up the road and play each other in a park. Um, you know, don't get on an airplane. So we're making those kinds of changes to be able to, again, streamline so it's more regional focused. You know, back back when, you know, Grail and I played the 1930s, um, you know, <laughs> there are probably only two or three communities in the country that were really good. But today... Right. Every state has great competition that you'd be able to put at least a season's worth of matches together so that teams don't really need to be flying all over the world for games. Right. Do they hit you up with the high school dilemma there, you know, where they you had to play with one group or another and it sort of uh, gutted the player's high school experience? Have they asked you guys to weigh in on that at all? Um, not officially, but I will say, you know, from my own design – um, I, it would be hard pressed for me to ever convince someone not to be able to play in high school. I am an absolute advocate that high school, if somebody wants to play high school and they're being forbidden by their team, they need to find a new team. Um, you know, high school is not so much a competitive environment as, as it is a social. And in, you know, when, when, when players of today get to be my age, you look back and your high school experience and that camaraderie that you get to be connected, you're never going to forget it. And not being right. able to have that, I think, is a mistake. Yeah, which, you know, goes back to your point about young kids dropping out at 13, 14. If they're incentivized by playing for their high school team, where you actually get to develop and socially and you know, athletically, fine. <laughs> I just love it. Well, you're in Fairfield County, so you're in a great area where, you know, parents will spend 200, 300 Gs trying to get their kids a scholarship. It's like, I just put that money in a market account and, and uh, draw it down from there, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, so, no, it's uh, a, uh, it is crazy. And, and I still chuckle when I go up to the Staples High School up here and I see, again, six, seven-year-olds with a private soccer instructor 
out on the field. And you just kind of go, well, you know, great for the guy to be able to make some income, but wow. Um, yeah. Not necessary. Grail? Skip, you talked about the financial implications that uh, affect all of us uh, related to COVID-19. I'm just curious about the, uh, the, the youth soccer club's ability to survive financially and what your level of concern is with that, if there's just going to be a big loss in terms of the number of clubs. You know, I, it's hard to tell right now, you know, because again, so many clubs are, you know, registration to mouth. So if you completely lose the spring season, if the club didn't have good financials to begin with, are they going to be able to come out for the fall? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a huge concern. You know, I think hopefully from this, you know, we might see the clubs looking at, sure, you're going to need your revenue streams to be able to support your coaches that have their AAB licenses, you know, and, and, and want to fulfill a, a living as being a professional coach. But also to be able to get your numbers in, should we move also back towards volunteer coaches? You know, I, I coached for many years, never took a dime. I was a volunteer parent. And there are lots of parents that, sure, they're never going to be a, a licensed coach, but they're certainly going to be strong enough to be able to guide a group of kids that are just looking to have some fun, learn the game, and experience soccer as a lifestyle. So again, I think as we come out of this, more clubs, if they can expand that volunteer base to be able to draw more teams in that will pay, you know, a nominal amount to be, you know, that community-based team, that will hopefully give them that financial cushion so that, God forbid, we ever go through something like this again, they will be in a position to be able to sustain themselves. Good. So we can find sort of a silver lining in, in some of this stuff. You know, I commented last night, I don't know, I, it sounds like you're doing it as well, Skip, but every night now I'm sitting down to a family dinner. It's like I'm eating like a champ, but everybody's sitting around the table. And I'm like, I haven't eaten like this since I was a kid, you know, growing up around the table with my sisters. And it was sort of, uh, it was, it was kind of nice. So it was a bit of a throwback, but uh, nope, I realized for years, no one sat down together and had dinner uh, as much as you tried. It was always sort of people were all off in different places. So you have a lot, uh, you had a lot of work ahead of you, Skip, but I think you're the right man uh, to take it on. The, you know, sometimes with our soccer experience, I've noticed that so many of us just become soccer centric and we don't know that there's another world out there. And I remember Hank Steinbrecher saying, you know, he left the soccer world and he went to work for Gatorade and a few other things he sort of said, he started to see the big picture and how soccer could fit in into that and sort of uh, take what you can from these other programs, from the NBA or the NFL, what works and what doesn't and uh and build a better mousetrap and so uh that's what you that's the job ahead of you skip so uh you seem to be the man for it so we're, we're glad you're joining us on over the ball i hope you come back and see us again you still play at all skip no no i gave that up <laughs> two years ago um would love to but you know especially as a goalkeeper you get to a point where you can't dive as far and you can't throw your body at you know at people's feet anymore without thinking oh this is gonna hurt Oh, you were thinking. That was your problem, Skip. You were thinking. But by the way, every goalkeeper I know does not go back between the pipes. They just are like, no. yeah, I'm going to kick it around out in the field. And, uh, so yeah, and it's, I've, I've always found it tough to get past a goalkeeper because you drop a shoulder and they don't, they don't go for the first fake and you run right into them. <laughs> we like to just take anybody out. If you're in our way, we go through you to get the ball. 
I love it. Well, you, you talk about goalkeeping. Do you remember like when you were playing, uh, if you were in the box, the goalkeeper could actually practice Taekwondo on you as you went up for a head ball, you know, if he'd throw in all these kicks and punches. Well, I was going for the ball. No, you weren't. You know, now it's uh, the, the keepers, uh, they don't have that right anymore. Thank God. Well, you know, there, as they say, some things just have to go backwards in time. And, you know, that's one of them. But. <laughs> that and eating dinner. Skip, uh, Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us on Over the Ball. Best of luck with everything and getting through this and um, all the safety to your family as well. Thanks. Thanks. And thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Oh, that was great, guys. Love getting caught up with Skip Gilbert. He, uh, he's, like I said, I think he's the right man for the job. And by the way, everybody out there in over the ball land, uh, he said that there's a big announcement coming up in the next day or two. So keep yeah. an eye out for that. Uh, but uh, we have some MLS news as well. Let's get caught up on that before we get going here. Uh, Grail? Yeah, so they're opening uh, with individual workouts. Uh, I think four teams have started them. Um, so that'll, that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Again, um, one of the other things that, I, that Paul Kennedy brought up in a really interesting article in Soccer America was the fact that uh, soccer-specific stadiums, of which there, you know, there, there are many, and I think 20 of the 26 MLS teams own or operate their stadiums, that's proving to be a real financial issue for them because they've got no revenue coming in whatsoever. And not only do they play their own games there, some of them also have NWSL matches and some had XFL revenue. Remember that league that folded? Yeah. And that will a, lot of, a lot of them actually had concerts there where it's the perfect yeah. size for a concert, you know? Yeah. So it's really proving to be, that's, uh, that's proving to be a real financial issue for them on top of everything else. Um, and then, and then next year you've got Austin, Cincinnati and Columbus looking to open new stadiums. So that'll be interesting to see in terms of construction. Is that going to proceed on time? And, you know, obviously just lots of question marks. Oh, boy, I tell you, sometimes it's, a, it's like a conspiracy, I think. Like a soccer conspiracy. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And, you know, the one other thing I wanted to just follow up on with Skip Gilbert, I was just thinking about it now. I wish I'd asked him about the split season in college and see how he feels about that because yeah. I think that would make soccer uh, more of a sport that not only would be better for the players, uh, you know, academically and physically, but would highlight the game. I would have loved to play one game on a Saturday, either home or away, and you prepare for it all week. It's, it's more like the, the real thing. If, if we had played more matches, I think we played 14 matches in our season. If we had played 20 or something, I definitely would have been for it, but uh, playing 14, I felt like the fall was pretty manageable because we played Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and I kind of liked having it. But by the way, I see, you know, for Clemson and for Sasha, uh, Sasha at Maryland and stuff, I totally get it. To me, for D1 powerhouse schools, it makes total sense. Well, it's it's the future. I mean, it's yeah. the way we can build this sport. It's something, you know, again, I said we went to the uh, – Final Four in, in Kansas City, and there was nobody in the stadium. When, like, you know, all of Skip's youth kids should be there from that area to see great soccer, great college soccer. So, yeah. all right. So, uh, COVID 19 continues. A lot of people saying COVID 19 is the amount of weight they've gained uh, from eating and staying in. <laughs> uh, so, I'm staying oh my on my goodness. bike and getting outside. Uh, anything else, guys, before we wrap up here? 
No, just, uh, yeah. just, just you know, yeah, look, and looking forward to seeing how it all works out with the Bundesliga. Like Sam was saying, I think that is, you know, that, that is a, such a template for what could or could not go well. So, yeah. you know. I'm curious sending, also to see the uh, FIFA's put out, you know, the idea of five substitutions for the end of the year, trying to get yeah. that in people's minds. Um, yeah, because you got to uh, fit a lot of games in in a short period of time, right? Yeah, I mean, that's – it's like college I mean, soccer. It's a big change. I like it. It's a big change. I like change. it on a short term. As long as it's, you know, it's in the mandated that it's a one season type thing and then it's back to the regular substitution, I would have no issue with it. Yeah. I mean, I could see it being adopted going forward. I think especially with the more more and more matches players are asked to play at the top clubs. You know, yeah. I, I ultimately don't think it would be a good thing because then I think those big teams would just stockpile even more players. Right. If they right, already exactly. have, you know. Although, although, Sam, you bring up a good point because it would also, if you had the five subs, you wouldn't have to do what Klopp did where he basically played his entire reserve team in a cup game. You yeah. could actually rotate more top-level players and have better quality out there on a more regular basis. Yeah, so. but to Sam's point, the, 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 you know, the second-tier players on Liverpool are better than most first-tier players. So this, they, these big-team stockpile players. So it's like, you know, I remember, like, talking about college football, where they'd say Alabama, you know, Florida State, Notre Dame, they would take players just so another team couldn't have them. And sure. the guy would just sit on the bench for four years. So, yeah. all right, guys. So uh, everybody stay safe, stay sheltered during this crazy, weird, wacky time in our world, in our country. Uh, and yeah, soccer is not a primary concern, but it's a concern of ours. And we'll keep following it on over the ball. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Soccer America and Ticket IQ. Also our guest, Skip Gilbert, the CEO of United States Youth Soccer. Again, look out for a big announcement coming out of that camp in the next day or two. Uh, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OP. Beep.